0: Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespokecast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespokecast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter, at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy this SpokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome to Bespoke Cast. we're really excited this week to have Louis Navalier uh, of Navalier uh, on to talk about his investment strategy, his experience in the markets. Uh, He's a market strategist and investor who's been around for a lot longer than I have, and so we're we're hoping to hear some some interesting insight on his approach. Uh, He likes to deal with quantitative factors and stock screens in a way that we're quite familiar with at Bespoke, so Louis, thanks so much for talking to us today. Welcome to SpokeCast.
1: It's an honor to be here.
0: Just a little bit of background to start with I think would be really helpful. So you're from the East Bay in California? That's correct. Uh, my mom's from Martinez, just a little bit north of where you grew up, I think. So um, East Bay represent. You did your undergrad um, at Cal State Hayward, is that correct? That's correct. And what did you study at Cal State?
1: I, I, st- I got a degree in finance. Um um, At that time, um, you could uh, go to the state schools and get through in three years. So I graduated when I was 20 and went to work in San Francisco, finished the MBA over there. And uh, I was fortunate because when I was in college, uh, we had um, folks from Wells Fargo teaching us. So we got to build some of the first index products before indexing really took off. And we had full access to their um, mainframes. So I really got a head start
0: right and back then computing power obviously not ubiquitous and and, you know literally cheaper than breathing like it is today of
1: course that's right
0: what sort of um mainframe product were you working on did it have like any kind of graphical interface at all was it it wasn't punch cards obviously but uh, much more involved than today's sort of very user-friendly stock screening tools i would imagine
1: You know, I'm pretty old, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was Fortran. And uh, essentially what happened is uh, they had passed this law called ERISA and the way the lawyers were interpreting ERISA, they said, gee, if we can just match a benchmark, we can kind of cover our butt for lack of a better word. So the goal at that time was to figure out how to mirror the S&P 500, but indexing hadn't exploded. So the project was uh, how many stocks do you need to mirror the S&P? So essentially I built a tracking portfolio of 332 stocks that was designed to mirror the S&P. But I was a failure because I accidentally beat the market. So I learned that I was lied to, that there are inefficiencies, anomalies in the market, so that's what I've been documenting ever since.
0: And then the early 1980s, um, late 1970s, you know, that was sort of the advent of the efficient market hypothesis and the idea that it was going to, you know, you could sort of pick your trade-off between risk and reward, and that was going to be the most efficient you could get, and it was going to be impossible to outperform as a single stock picker. That that became more widely accepted as, as we moved forward in time, but um, coming out of the 1970s and into the 1980s, that was sort of the, the dawn of, you know, markets uber alles as the sort of ideology that a lot of people in finance worked with. Do you think that's a fair way to describe that?
1: I think that's fair. I think uh, stock picking was in back then, you know, uh, San Francisco was a very exciting place back then. You know, we had Montgomery Securities and a bunch of other uh, firms, Hamburg and Quest, and there was a big buzz around the town. And of course, uh, tech stocks were leading the way. The irony is, uh, a lot of the tech surge was caused because the big techs were overweight in the S&P 500. So, um, but um, you know, it uh, it was a very exciting time, and uh, I'm I'm proud that I was able to document uh, anomalies and efficiencies.
0: When you created your tracking portfolio, you set out to replicate the S&P 500 without buying all 500 stocks at the respective weights. Is that is that more or less correct?
1: That's correct. I mean, you want to basically create a beta of one and you want to get your uh, tracking error as high as, um, you know, you want to eliminate any tracking error. And I said, okay, these 332 stocks should mirror the market. And, I, and uh, again, unfortunately, I was a failure. My portfolio accidentally excell- beat the market. <laughs> so essentially, I learned that alpha exists. Okay. And um, so my quest became to document alpha. Um, you have to realize I'm so old. I had textbooks it didn't even have alpha in the textbooks. I still remember I had a Sharp book that had this top secret formula called alpha. And so I set out to document that it existed. And um when I left uh, college um you had to do everything on uh, literally a TI calculator, okay? And we had a little Sharp program in there and we entered the data to um calculate the alphas betas, uh, standard deviations, all that good stuff. And uh so I set out to document that alpha existed and then of course uh What's happened to us over time is we become more of a fundamental quant. We want to find out what is the fundamental force causing the alpha. And um, one of the sad things nowadays is a lot of people do their regressions wrong. They're, they're, they're comparing um, you know, small cap stocks to large cap indices. They're, they're essentially comparing chihuahuas to elephants and they may have four legs and a tail, but they behave differently. So uh, you know, we've also done a lot of work to calculate statistically much better alphas. Uh, we regress them against all the benchmarks. Um, We only use the ones with the highest R-squareds. We also test time cycles, although I still like my original time cycle of uh, 52 weeks. Um, But, you know, when I was in college, there were some people that were doing tests over five years and three years. And I think when I was in college, three-year exponential was the hottest uh, cycle at that time.
0: When you say time cycles, can we get into a little bit more there what you mean? Do you mean um, like a momentum-type approach, or do you mean like, a, like how a technician would think about a time cycle, uh, mean reversion within a time period?
1: Uh, what we do is we, uh, we had to figure out what was the most statistically valid period to calculate alphas, betas, standard deviations, et cetera. And uh, at that time, I, I uh, experimented with a, a 12-month cycle, which later became a 52-week cycle, just more intervals. So literally, you know, in the old days, when I left college, um, I'd grab a Barron's on a Saturday and key in all the information on a on a little uh, uh, TI uh, calculator. And uh, I had my I built my own databases from scratch, so I had a big head start on everybody. And of course, later on, you know, all the computer technology came out and uh, we always tried to stay on top of that and be on the cutting edge.
0: You started doing that as a student and and essentially doing it out of intellectual curiosity. Uh, you moved into the workforce. Uh, where was your first job at?
1: It was the Federal Home Loan Bank. It's a savings loan regulator in San Francisco. And that's not stock picking at all. No, I was just doing this on the side, and I started the letter because uh, I graduated from college in 78 and uh, finished MBA in 79, and I got a job at the Federal Home Loan Bank in between, and um, I was uh, what they call an industry development analyst. We were opening up new savings and loan branches, and then back then, the yield curve got inverted, and uh, there was a financial crisis, so yeah, we basically started to merge savings and loans together. Uh, it was actually a very good experience because... Uh, To this day, I really don't like financial stocks because I was behind the scenes. Um, Also, um, back then, you know, the banks and savings and loans had um, very aggressive accounting, and uh, we had to get uh, basically losing um, savings and loans um, FSLIC insurance. So we, we did some accounting adjustments that um, would be considered controversial today, but we, we had to literally cook the books to make get them uh, insurance. The inverted yield curve was devastating to the industry back then. Believe it or not, the adjustable mortgages weren't popular. So when the yield curve inverted, uh, they, they, it didn't do well.
0: Right. And so this is the, the spike in rates, Volcker fighting, fighting inflation in the early 1980s.
1: Correct. That was that whole discovering monetization thing. And uh, the Fed became very mechanical, and they just um, uh, they just decided to monetize everything. And, um, and um, you know, the good news is they broke the back of inflation. The bad news is they destroyed the savings loan industry.
0: And that crisis, the savings loan crisis, that may have had its seeds and its first sprouts under the high uh, rate regime that Volcker introduced, but that continued on into the 1990s, correct? That didn't fully play out for quite some time afterwards.
1: That's correct. That's correct. It, it, financial crises are fascinating. I wrote a white paper um, on the last one, and uh, you know I actually blamed the government for the the last financial crisis. Basically, uh, Spitzer taking out AIG. Um, uh, you know, I actually threw a lot of politicians on their bus, but we definitely threw Spitzer under the bus for messing up AIG, putting in incompetent management, and that of course broke the credit default swap market. I actually blamed Jeb Bush for. Um, blowing up the state of Florida. He went to work for Lehman the State of Florida, lost $2 billion cash management. And then finally, um, um, I was very upset with Jack Lew for um, the, their Falcon funds, the leverage muni funds at uh, Citibank. Uh, I live down here in the Palm Beach area in Florida. And, um, you know, we, we had Bernie up the street, six home south of me was Tom Petters. He's still $3.7 billion. But my neighbors were wiped out dramatically by uh, the Falcon funds that Citibank sold. And that's where they would leverage munis eight to one.
0: So that that's really interesting. I, I don't think I've ever heard of someone blame politicians, those specific politicians. I mean, I think a lot of the discussion around the financial crisis and its seeds, you hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, the government wanted everyone to have a mortgage or lax regulation or, um, you know, the Fed had the wrong policy, you know pick your ideological framework or your, um, you know, framework for the world and, and the government can have messed up in any number of ways from that perspective. But I don't think I've ever heard someone say, oh, well, it was Spitzer's fault for, you know, putting the wrong people in charge of AIG um, so on and so forth. That's really interesting and unique.
1: Yeah. And basically, you know, they went through a few um, CEOs and in fact, they got another one the other day, but basically uh, when they um, took over AIG, and they finally got this auto insurance guy to run AIG they wrote credit default swaps at the wrong rate, so they could all pay themselves a nice juicy bonus. And as they wrote credit default swaps at the wrong rate, you know, uh, Warren Buffett got out of the business, and uh, basically, uh, credit default swaps didn't work. Yeah, and this is the
0: infamous AIG financial products division out of London that that really was the the place where the crisis metastasized into you know, the, the broader economy in a way that it hadn't up to that point because there was all this risk on, um, subprime mortgages that, that was reinsured out of, you know, one desk from AIG that had what, like 10 employees, I think, or something like that. A very small. Uh, too unit. few,
1: too yeah. few. And the, um, I mean, with all due respect to, um, uh, Jeb Bush and Jack Lou had, you know, the, had the SIVs continue to work, um, then, uh, uh Excuse me. The credit default swaps continued to work. Uh, the, the the SIVs wouldn't have blown up. That's where what uh, Jeb lost money with the uh, on the state of Florida uh, via Lehman, and then of course the leveraged uh, bond products probably wouldn't have blown up either.
0: Do you tie at all a um, a line between the as you described it monetization of monetary policy in the 1980s and the shift that took place under Volcker to where we ended up getting in
1: the mid-2000s? I think that we empowered the Fed too much to be honest with you. I think, uh, with all due respect to Janet Yellen, you can see the Fed is gonna try to unwind their balance sheet. They're gonna try to get out of the spotlight. Um, I think the biggest problem Yellen's gonna have is she's fighting a a flattening yield curve. And uh, of course uh, while our central bank has stopped their quantitative easing, uh, the other central banks are continuing it, and of course, they're in, because um, interest rates are negative in many parts of the world. Uh, the, uh, people are buying corporate debt, and that's why we have this incredible uh, narrow premium between the cor- corporates and and uh, governments, as well as high yield and quality. So, it's um, I, I you know I think the central banks have gotten themselves in a position that is very uncomfortable. I think the fact that our feds trying to get out out of influencing the markets is healthy. I think if we get repatriation, a lot of money coming back with corporate tax reform, that'll be the best window for the Fed to unwind their balance sheet. Of course, they just told us they want to unwind start unwinding 10 billion a month and move it up to 50 billion a month. But um, you know, the ECB is just a mess. I mean, it's just an absolute mess. They can they can uh, they can't stop pumping uh, they, they, it's their job to save their banking system, whether it's Italian banks, the Spanish banks, uh, the German banks. I mean, flat yield curves are devastating to banks, and uh, that's why you hardly ever see a bank in my portfolio.
0: So, do you like then what the Bank of Japan is doing in in attempting to target the yield curve as opposed to the supply of money or short-term interest rates?
1: I'm really not an expert in, in the Bank of Japan, other than they they got themselves in a conundrum they can't get out. Um, obviously. Uh, if you target the yield curve, um, you know you're more obsessed with bonds. The problem with any central bank is they're very effective at controlling short-term rates. And when you start to do all this quantitative easing, you start to build this huge portfolio. and Then you, you're trying to manipulate more of the yield curve. But I think the ability of any central bank to manipulate anything other than short-term rates is questionable.
0: Do you then think that the Fed should never have entered into? Uh, and we'll use just the Fed as opposed to the ECB or the BOJ, as you know for this little tangent, but do you think the Fed then should never have engaged in quantitative easing, should never have engaged in um, the sort of very loose monetary policy in the early 2000s that that um, Greenspan did? Um, if you could go back to the late 1990s and Greenspan's approach to managing economic risk around the emerging markets blow up as another example. Or do you think that that, you know, there are no good solutions. Like, like what's the alternative that you just, you know, keep overnight rates high and maybe the yield curve stays steep, but the economy collapses, right? Like, like, like what's the, should the Fed do nothing instead of trying to support um, growth and inflation and, and maximum employment as it's mandated to do?
1: I think the Fed should make sure that our, our government markets, our treasury markets and our government backed securities uh, remain orderly. Okay and um, so they have to do whatever they can to make sure that when high yield blows up or uh, municipals blow up that treasuries don't blow up as long as treasuries always remain an oasis that's the key Uh, so you know they have to provide liquidity and um, um, because if the treasuries blow up then we're all uh, then it's going to be Bitcoin time or something. You know, It's, it's not
0: going to be a good thing. <laughs> it's worth noting that the Fed's third mandate that doesn't get discussed very much um, is moderate long-term interest rates, right? So that is an explicit goal of Federal Reserve policy is to keep long-term interest rates from whipping around too much.
1: Yeah, but you can see it's it's not easy to be a central banker. I mean, I I, I don't have a degree in e- economics or anything, but listen, they, we have a lot of deflationary forces out there. And uh, that's That's probably pushing down the yield curve. The other central bank policies are probably pushing down the curve. The dollar's still relatively strong during 12 months. There's a lot of capital flight to America. Um, And um, it's just, I think the Fed's learning that it's just really tough. And uh, I think it's admirable they want to unwind their balance sheet a bit. Um, You know, there's a bubble still blowing under the stock market and the housing market. I mean, last I saw, you, you can... People can still go to Wells Fargo and get a 3% down mortgage up to 417000 That will be sold to um, uh, uh, Freddie Mac. Um, obviously, the low interest rate environment is clearly fueling the stock market. Uh, the question is, did, did this low interest rate policy that the Fed have, is, was it designed to, to help the stock market? Probably. But the fact that the stock market uh, after tax yields more than the 10-year treasury, um, I don't know. I think that's pretty bullish. and um, so uh, I think you know the, the the Fed's job was to restore confidence in all financial markets, and I think they've succeeded. And I think it's admirable they China want to exit on stage left, and um, and uh, so I you know I, I really don't want to criticize the central bankers. I, I think that would that job would drive me nuts.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting you note though that you know there are all these deflationary forces in the world, and and. You know, I think I think there's a there's a valid debate to be had over how strong they are and how much they directly affect the US economy, um, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, inflation today is clearly nowhere near where it was for most of the formative period of a lot of policymakers and investors' lives, which was, you know, the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, right? Like inflation is structurally lower now than it was then. So shouldn't interest rates be structurally lower? Shouldn't that mortgage at Wells Fargo be lower? I mean I guess my question is, is there a a bubble in financial assets or are financial assets rationally responding to the fact that discounted values should be higher due to a lower discount rate and
1: the latter i mean the bottom line is the market is not overvalued relative to interest rates and um you know i'm a stock guy and i have a very large bond business selling you know packaging bundling bonds selling through banks and brokerage firms and um you know, there's a there's hunger for yield out there and that hunger for yield is actually causing the physical stock market to shrink. You know, my average large cap stock retires almost six percent of its float uh, every year and will be gone in about 17 years uh, at the current buyback rate, though, S&P is going to be gone in 27 years. You know, corporate America doesn't sell much stock now unless you're some frothy, inflated thing like a Tesla secondary offering or a. Snapchat or something like that. All the companies with good valuations just sell debt and they continue to sell debt to aggressively buy their stock back. Plus our multinationals go as far as way to Germany and will sell, you know, nine year notes at 70 basis points. I believe Apple does that to buy more of their stock back. So this financial engineering that's going on, selling debt to buy back stock is, you know, is finance 101 in every business textbook and they tell you the lower the pe the more you should debt financing the higher the PE, the more you should sell stock and if you do you know uh, pe versus uh, um, where bond yields are and you basically better raise money in the bond market to buy your stock back and the physical stock market is shrinking and now we have inflows in the market and wherever there's inflows you get the melt up and you see it in the emerging markets you see i i see definitely in adrs um uh you know you you see it in the, in the stocks that lead some of the indices, you know, the, the FANG stocks and things. Um, we're going to see it in the next couple of weeks with the Russell realignment and the 90-day uh, the um, ETF uh, rebalancing for all the smart beta weight ETFs. Um, I'll see it on quarter and window dressing. You know, I saw, I saw a lot of it in the end of March and the quarter end ETF rebalancing and window dressing. June's uh, second half of June is going to be more exciting because, uh, in addition to the the um, ninety day uh, smart beta and equal weighted uh, ETF rebalancing and the quarter and winter dressing, we got the annual Russell realignment and that's just wild. I mean that that Russell realignment just it's just a wild thing. It's uh, going to be fun to watch.
0: We'd love to talk more about rebalancing, but just to um, pick out one thing you had said there previously, um, this argument that a lot of the buybacks that are going on in the market are debt financed um, in aggregate. So obviously you can pick out any given company and it's going to have a slightly distinct strategy based on its individual outlook and its bond yields and its equity price. So there's always going to be single company counter examples you can find. But in aggregate, operating cash flow is much higher than buybacks are, right? Like, and the sum of operating cash flow and capex is not dramatically higher than than buybacks. It, it's in it, I think it's slightly higher than, than the total. Um, so if companies are generating all this cash flow and using that to buy back equity, is that in fact, um, you know, supporting stock prices purely through debt issuance or are we talking about something a little bit more marginal than that? That, that sort of seems to be a bit of a disconnect to me.
1: Well, I think it's both. I mean, uh, whether companies get it from selling debt and or, um, uh, their cash flow. I mean, clearly we just finished uh, the first quarter was the best earnings in five years. Um, based on what I see, the earnings are going to get progressively better every single quarter this year. If we get the corporate tax reform through, it's going to be incredible, but with or without corporate tax reform, uh, we're in a very healthy uh, environment for earnings and, um, and a lot of people, a lot of companies are taking those earnings and buying their stock back. I mean, just to keep it simple, uh, all the companies with a high return on equity and a P ratio of 20 or less, should probably be buying their stock back. Now, if, if I traded at 50 times earnings and uh, I had a, a, a product cycle that was uh, going the wrong way and my operating margins were, were collapsing, Now, yeah, I, I wouldn't buy my stock back. I'd go do secondary stock offerings. But uh, basically, um, uh, there's a lot of companies out there with high return equity, Reasonable price earnings ratios, good cash flow, expanding operating margins, and they can take all that excess cash and and use it to support their stock. And uh, we see that the buybacks often kick in at the end of an earnings season. You know, going into an earnings season, they don't like to buy their stock back because it's um, they don't they're not supposed to manipulate their their stock prices too much. But after earnings season, they're in there hot and heavy buying their stock back, especially in large cap.
0: Earlier, you had mentioned the rebalancing effects that you see both from traditional cap weighted um, ETFs and index linked products and also from now this new generation of smart beta, um, you know, factor tilt, that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit more about that and some sort of, if possible, some numerical examples, like an estimate of how much of an effect that that can have on a given ETF or a given index?
1: Sure. Well, um, it's huge. I mean, uh, um, I guess I have to go back and talk about uh, the government again. Um, the reason the ETF industry has exploded is largely because when the SEC went after 12b1 fees on funds um, and they stopped at 25 base 12b1 fee uh, um, kick back to the firms uh, the ETF industry stepped in and figured out a better way to basically support sales so basically a, a, a firm like Merrill Lynch um, iShares is very welcome because they kick back money to the firm. Spiders uh, from State Street are not welcome because there's no kickback. Um, What do you
0: mean by kickback, though?
1: They actually, uh, if you basically do business in iShares, there'll be money sent to the firm, and that can filter all the way down to the financial advisor. Okay. So there are ETFs there that are friendly to firms, uh, like uh, Spiders. Excuse me, uh, no, not Spiders, uh, iShares. And there are ETFs that are not friendly, like Spiders or Vanguard, okay? And um, so what's happened is, um, like, my daughter's a mutual fund wholesaler, okay? And her budget is $4,000 a month. Well, a lot of the ETF wholesalers have a $25,000 a month budget. And uh, the way the ETF industry works is at 2.30 in the afternoon, they shop the, the blocks of trades, And uh, there are these anonymous trading groups that facilitate ETF liquidity. And if there's an order imbalance on the downside, the ETF may trade at a discount. If there's an order balance on the upside, they may trade at a premium. ETFs, you know, don't trade at net asset value. And um, as the ETF industry has grown and prospered, um, uh, the the, the salespeople in the ETF business just coincidentally have more money, even though there apparently is not a lot of management fees. So the question is, is how much of those ETF firms are, are they making money by facilitating liquidity in their own products? So I'm not picking on the ETF firms or anybody that picks uh, that, um, that uh, facilitates liquidity. But the bottom line is, is uh, financial advisors uh, basically go to whoever shows up in their office with, with money. And the ETFs have captured market share. They're now they've won. I concede they've won. Um, and um, what's happened is, is uh, now we have to watch the flow of funds, okay? So uh, somebody like uh, First Trust, which has the Alphadex ETFs, which are kind of a, a blend of smart beta plus uh, equal weight, um, you know, that's, that's a big deal. And uh, as a stock manager, I want to be the nose on the dog, and I want to make sure I own those stocks before they rebalance every 90 days. Uh, look at the success of DFA. They've, done, they've, they've been incredible. Um, so I want of all their um, fundamental products, I want to be ahead of them. Of course, that's mostly a mutual fund company. But, um, you know, there's a big push to equal weight because last year the tail end of the S&P did better than the top end. Of course, we used the bespoke reports to show everybody that. You guys did a great job of that, that the bottom 100 stocks in S&P were up over 20 last year. And so a lot of financial advisors are doing equally weighted products. And um, and, uh, so I know my um, small cap stocks are going to get a free um, melt-up at the end of each quarter as those ETFs are rebalanced.
0: You don't think then that the ETF, uh, the shift to ETFs and shift to passive vehicles within that ETF universe has anything to do with the fact that, you know, a a Vanguard ETF is a perfect example, right? Um, An investor in a Vanguard ETF for, a market neutral exposure, just S&P 500 is going to pay drastically less than they would have paid to a traditional mutual fund company 10, 20 years ago. Um, I, I don't think that's a particularly controversial statement, regardless of the liquidity concerns around ETFs. So do you think you think then it's entirely marketing and entirely industry industry structure that's driving those ETF flows and not the fact that this really is for a lot of people a better mousetrap?
1: ETFs are... are... Very good uh, for a lot of investors. However, the dark side of ETFs, I'll pick on my own smart beta ETF. I had a smart beta ETF with Oppenheimer for seven years. Okay, I shut it down last year. Um, my, uh, my, the average premium, according to Morningstar, to buy my own smart beta ETF, 22 large cap stocks, was 1.37. The average discount to get out was 3.74. Those are Morningstar's numbers, not mine. So, if you. Sorry, that's
0: 1.37% and 3.74%.
1: Correct. 1.37% premium to buy, 3.74% discount to sell to, and to net asset value or intrinsic value, as Morningstar calls it. So, in theory, had you bought and sold my ETF every month um, through Oppenheimer market order, you would have lost 60% in a year. I don't think people realize the spreads on ETFs. And, I, and so I'm. Do ETF management. In fact, I'm highly rated, and I got five five five-star ETF portfolios. And the reason we do ETF management, other than we have models to pick the best sectors and all that good stuff, is we tell financial advisors that if they do it themselves, they're going to get picked off. So why don't you use somebody like us that basically make sure you don't get picked off? so
0: what do i just sorry sorry just to clarify just for my own edification here when you're talking about the premium to buy and the um discount to sell you're talking about the average bid ask spread essentially right, right? you're not right. talking about the closing price change to market value or to net asset value you're talking about you know the average bid has to pay one point uh sorry seven through uh the the you know, mid and the, or the net asset value, sorry, not the mid. And the average offer has
1: to pay over 3% through the net asset value. I'm talking about the premium discounts and net, net asset value. Uh, or
0: But but you're talking about those in terms of the, those, those premium discounts, right? Are driven by the bid-ask spread on the right. ETF you're right. buying at right. the market. So, so just to give a little bit of pushback here, VWO uh, SBY, like the bid-ask spreads are not that high. You know, they're not. Right. They they may be, you know, there is a bit spread of course, but is the entire ETF market dysfunctional in some sense relative to the alternative, which would, I guess, be mutual funds? if you're having to if, if you know you say oh well if you go into smaller etfs the bid as spreads are really high well of course it's the same thing with small cap stocks right? Sure. like nobody would expect ge sure. to trade at the same premium of a or trade at the same bid as spread as a small cap ENP company you know drilling in the permian or something like that right so I, I just, I just, to, just to push back and sort of question a little bit, I, I'm not, is that a fair example to say, oh, well, you know, a smaller cap ETF relative to these large cap pure, you know, large cap stock indices, um, in, index ETFs, they're no good because the small cap ETFs traded at, at a wide bid spread. Is that, is that like a fair comp? I, I just kind of hear that. That's and I a fair, bit but of... I'm
1: going to give you a, a much more precise answer. Okay. Sure. Uh, 98.5% of the time ETFs are fine. Okay. The cap weighted ETFs spiders eye shares are clearly better okay but now let me start to pick on them there was a firm called Good Harbor they did I'm familiar I share- with the name they this did eye shares, good, yeah okay uh-huh. what happened is um as they got bigger and bigger they went from a monthly system to bi monthly so one of the guys that writes for me he destroyed them. he picked them off and he worked for Canter and Jeffries and uh he saw him coming and picked them off um In our business they try to model us nowadays model management is fine day one day two sorry
0: sorry just just to back up on the good harbor so what good harbor was doing i I just want to elucidate for folks that aren't familiar so what good harbor was doing is they had a big portfolio of etfs and they rebalanced um occasionally um so for instance if bonds were up big and stocks were down big they would sell bonds and buy um stocks all through ETFs and you could model what they were going to do based on how individual assets have performed and get into the ETFs they were going to buy and get out of the ETFs they were going to sell ahead of that rotation because it was telegraphed, right?
1: Correct. And uh, so if you get an order in balance at 2.30 in the afternoon, buy or sell, you're going to get um, pricing problems. And Good Harbor is the case study that even iShares didn't work. Clearly, iShares, a cap-weighted ETF, has better liquidity than an equally-weighted ETF. But let me go back and just tell you the truth so we can kind of cut to the chase. So in 2010, there was a flash crash, okay? And it lasted five minutes, and it was caused by Waddell and Reed in Kansas City. Something happened. I think it was a futures thing. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, We had a five-minute pricing problem on Wall Street. SEC comes in and says... Oh. If you lost more than 40%, we're breaking the trade. If we lost uh if you lost 39.9%, uh, eat it. Okay? That was their conclusion. That was the 2010 flash crash. So let's fast forward to August, uh, I think it was August 24th, 2015. Uh we had a bad opening in the market. 1,278 stocks gap down, hit the uh, circuit breakers on the exchange. They stopped trading. Um uh, cause they dropped more than 5%, but they kept trading ETFs that day, even though they couldn't price the stocks. So obviously the specialists and everybody that facilitates liquidity, those anonymous trading groups, um, they had a discount, the ETFs, um, and, um, most of them picked everybody off 35% intraday.
0: I mean, I, I know, I know people that, that just sitting at their desk in their PA were picking people off and, and, you know if you have an, uh, someone who's just picking people off by eyeing something, you know, I think it was like uh, U.S. core large cap fund. I, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, my, my friend was just sitting there and like, okay, down 35%. That's wrong. I just picked up a free 20, 25% yeah, well,
1: by buying it. Right. Like you have very smart friends. Okay.
0: Well, I mean, I, I but I, <laughs> but I guess that nobody thought the S and P 500 should be down 35%, right? This was around um, just so folks, in case you've, don't remember correctly. Um, this was around the Chinese yuan devaluation in August um, of 2015, and you know the sort of waterfall sell-off on a Monday in the market when you know folks just walked in and sold everything. The way modern market structure works, if there is a person with a mouse at their desk, you know, on their firm's you know execution software, able to say this is an obvious arbitrage, I you know this isn't just like a market risk I want to take that looks attractive. This isn't. Arbitrage. If, if a stock that represents US large caps is down 35%, that's an arbitrage, right? If you're able to do that, something is clearly broken somewhere. If you're able to do that by hand, right? If you're not. So, so that sort of speaks to the disruption that you're talking about there.
1: Well, I'm glad you were talking about it because this is basically all the flow of funds in the market. And basically, you know, I have a lot of individual clients and they worry about, you know, the next uh, big correction and all that stuff. And I basically tell people, you should not worry about corrections, uh, especially if you have a fundamental spurs portfolio, you should worry about the mechanics of the market, because we're going to have more August uh, 2015s out there. And the problem is, is, so let's just pick on DVY, the iShares Dividend ETF. Okay, uh, You go up do a bar graph of that ETF, and you'll see it had a almost a 35% intraday spread and that, that, that shouldn't happen with a, with a bunch of um, high dividend <laughs> stocks in a, in, a, in a very diversified balanced uh, multi-billion dollar ETF. But it happened, okay? And um, then you go on to Morningstar and kick in DVY and they show you the, the volatility that never happened. So Morningstar is doing their math wrong, just so you know, okay? Uh, guys like me that are quants look at what we call full range volatility. Morningstar is looking at average volatility, and on average, there are no pricing problems with DVY. But can unf- you
0: can you just describe the mathematical difference between uh, full range volatility and uh, average volatility? Is that just the difference between you know look, taking into account the high and low on a given day versus just the close from day to day?
1: Yeah, that's just, you've just nailed it. Uh, I'm I'm not an expert on why what Morningstar is doing, okay, but they're clearly not doing their math right, in my opinion, okay. And so they are masking the volatility that exists out there in ETFs, okay? So whether it's the, you know, the Guggenheim S&P Equal or, or, or any of the big ETFs. Um, ironically, my ETF at Oppenheimer back then didn't have that volatility because there were no sales during that fast market conditions, okay? Had there been, then I would have gotten picked off too. But, um, you know, the good news is Wall Street provides liquidity. The bad news is it, it provides at a steep discount. And most people don't know that the ETF industry is functioning out like the bond desk, okay? Wall Street is taking all our flow of funds, they're running us through all these models and these trading pipes, and they're basically uh, forcing, um, their their profit centers have now become the desks, okay? And and the bond market has always functioned like this. Uh, You don't have to disclose spreads and all that stuff. And uh, I'm actually leaving platforms right now as a money manager, because I'm getting tired of, of sending my stuff through pipes uh, and watching bad execution. And then, of course, what these trading pipes do is they sell our order flow to the high frequency guy so they can decide if they want to jump on and surf us. You know, I have a, a kid that goes to Stanford and he's, he's going to graduate, he's 20s he's, he's a very smart kid, he's, he's graduating early. And um, the, the hedge funds keep trying to recruit him because the math guys at Stanford said, my kid's good at math. And my kid thinks algorithms control the world. So the, the, the same algorithm that's watching Netflix or watching on Netflix or Amazon or Google or, you know, the algorithms are no different than the dog uh, watching you in your kitchen when you open the refrigerator. They take these behavioral algorithms <laughs> and they try to basically front run order flow. And, um, and that's that's you know the citadels of the world were very good at that and then as the order flow gets volatile they get off and and the good news is the citadels of the world provide liquidity now a lot of the algorithms are what are the ETF uh, premiums and discounts so you get like after Trump gets elected you know you got the financial stocks going nuts you got the industrial stocks and material stocks going nuts energy were pretty hot too Premiums start emerging in the ETF industry you buy the basket you short the ETF you collect the premium it's like the closed-in fund game so Which we should
0: we should point out, you know, that trade, that arbitrage trade, right, where you are providing liquidity in the ETF by hedging with the basket underlying it, um, either in a synthetic sense where you're doing it all inside your own account or in uh, by actually delivering the basket to the ETF desks, right, that are that are designed to manage this sort of process that is how etfs are supposed to work i you know i think that that can't be stressed enough that that process of creation redemption and arbitrage is why etfs can function the way they can and they're it's baked into how they're supposed to function etn's different story but etfs are much more dominant in in equity land so you know Mm -hmm. I, I think it's it's one of those things where you know the the tool doesn't always work perfectly for the the user of the tool like that you can use a tool that's designed to work a certain way or wrong um but the tool is working how it's supposed to work would, would you agree with that
1: i agree with you and i'm top ranked in etf management because i i think i calculate risk better and i can sidestep it um and um so like our top-ranked ETF portfolio, if you go to Morningstar Advisors, it's up almost 28% trailing 12 months. It's number one, one year, one, number one, three year. It's five-star, and then i got four other five-star products. But I can tell you that product is up 28% trailing 12 months. My desk added 8% of that 28. Okay? So there is a spread issue, and my desk is under strict instructions. Never pay a premium to buy and never pay a discount to sell. Always wait till the ETFs are properly structured. So if you go back to after BreExit, um, Betterment, the biggest robo program, had to shut down because of the premium discount problem. Uh, what's happening out there is a lot of the signals that go off on when to buy and sell certain sectors go off in fast market conditions, and that's when we get the pricing issues. Again, 98.5% of the time, ETFs are wonderful. For buy and hold, they're wonderful. They are the new wave of indexing. They document anomalies. And all I'm saying is you just got to be careful on the pricing. And I think I do risk better, you know, and I like the the smart beta ETF revolution because it's a fundamental revolution and I'm a fundamental guy. And, you know, just like I have religious reading of everything you guys do because you're documenting fundamental anomalies, I'm documenting fundamental anomalies. And when we see, we both found the same thing, we, it makes us feel better, you know? And, um, so it's, um, because ETFs have taken over all the flow of funds on Wall Street, plus our, our, our quant guys out there that, you know, caused the recent uh, tech thing. Um, the, uh, the bottom line is I just want to know where they are and I want to be ahead of them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So just, just to sort of sum up as a bottom line, because I, I think the folks that listen to this podcast, are going to come in a couple different flavors. And and I would put them into sort of two different baskets, right? Like you have folks like us who are staring at the market all day long every day and thinking a lot about fairly obscure risk management, fairly obscure uh, market mechanics, fairly obscure drivers of return, so on and so forth. And then you've got folks at home who are, you know, they just want to keep an eye on what's going on in their 401k and they, they're not trading every day. They're not actively managing their portfolios. They just want to have a secure retirement. So I, I think in a lot of these discussions around the advent of indexing, the advent of ETFs, the, the change in the industry away from human beings making decisions and towards algorithms making decisions, it can come across to the average person sitting at home. And this is not someone that's engaged in the market every day, but someone who just wants to keep an eye on their portfolio and make sure things are looking all right. I think it comes across as dangerous. The idea that ETFs are a dominant way to invest and that they have these shortfalls in periods of low liquidity like we've been talking about, that sounds dangerous to the average person. My take would be that it's not, in fact, dangerous at all if you follow a few practices. So, for instance, if you have stop loss orders um, and not limit stops, but market stop orders on your portfolio of equity ETFs, it is really easy to have those triggered and get horrible execution. But in the example of 2015 in the example of 2010 prices rebounded in literally minutes we're talking about very short time frames where sure stuff drops a lot but it's imbalances between flow as opposed to fundamental judgments about the stock market from from people sitting and making decisions so if you're thinking on a 30 year time frame having an ETF based portfolio where you know let's just say a 60 40 two ETF portfolio where you've got treasuries and and stocks. That's a totally defensible thing for a lot of people to have. You don't need to worry about any of this stuff, right? That you is know correct. You, you might that's
1: correct. You, yeah.
0: And really compared to the world in mutual funds where you had um high fees to get an exposure that's, that's very market neutral, you're way better off because the fees are different. The problems come in when you're using market stops, when you're using, um, an active approach and not managing risk correctly within that market approach. So, so I, I would just, I, you know, I, I always like to step back and sort of remember that, that the folks who are listening to this, it's, it's easy to get scared or easy to sound like we're talking about the doom of the financial markets or something like that. When in reality, I don't think that's what we're talking about at all.
1: That's correct. And um, George, you're a very good referee. So let's just summarize it. ETFs <laughs> are wonderful for passive investors, but if you start to actively trade ETFs, you better be careful. Yeah. Your comment on open stops is right on. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain, I'll, I'll give you a real life analogy. So down here in South Florida, where I, I just happen to have a home, I also have a home out, out west, um, people retire here and they miscalculate. You know, they live too long or hurricanes come, they got to fix their house, have a health problem. Anyway, so they miscalculate and they get stressed every year because, you know, their property tax bill might be 80 grand. Okay. And, uh, so the retirees down here basically make their money work too hard. Okay. So I know a whole bunch of retirees that took out home equity loans to buy more REITs and and MLPs on margin. And I know on uh, that famous day on August 24th, uh, of 2015, um, them getting picked off on margin calls. They didn't even have stops out there. And a good example would be KKR. You can pull up that chart. It was a popular um, uh, fixed income investment back then since fallen from grace, and it had a 59% intraday spread. Uh, you can do a PGX. Uh, um, I believe it's the, uh, it's a preferred, uh, preferred stock uh, uh, ETF, and it had a pro- pricing problem that day. It's a PowerShares product. So the bottom line is we, we joked around here, and it's not, it's not actually a good joke, but that uh, our senior citizens here in South Florida also contributed to the, uh, the pricing problems that day because they decided to buy REITs MLPs on margin. And they didn't know they were illiquid. And um, so obviously as a quant, I like to profit from these things, okay? And, uh, and, uh, but, you know, I also like to protect people from these things. So we tell people don't ever go on margin. Don't ever have a physical stop out there like you had mentioned. We tell people that if you have good fundamentals, whether it's dividend growth, sales growth, earnings growth, all the fundamental factors are in fashion. Of course, uh, we, uh, just like I find them on my own, and I re- reconfirm them with bespoke with your excellent decile analysis, that when we find those fundamental stocks, that those kind of stocks will bounce. Okay, Good stocks bounce like fresh tennis balls. Bad stocks fall like rocks. But I don't think there's a risk of a, a major correction in the market at more than 10%. I think the risk to the market is these mechanical things. And you're on top of it, I think I'm on top of it, but it still bothers me, okay? It bothers me that, you know, my kid at Stanford doesn't think he has to take a finance class because algorithms control the world, okay? And I basically have discouraged him from doing this, even though the professors keep pushing him. And um, so we'll see if he he ends up as my competitor and i get to pick off my kid one day okay (laughs) i I think um, that does
0: bring up an excellent point though that even in this world of algorithms and you know low-cost ETFs and indexing that there is a real value-added role for having a human being behind a a desk making decisions you may have to pay up for it in some sense so you know you're you're Portfolio management doesn't come for free. Bespoke offers portfolio management services. We don't come for free. Um, but there is a value to somebody saying, okay, do I really want to sell a preferred stock down or a preferred ETF down 35%? Does that really, like, like does that make sense? Or do I really want to buy 5% over the net asset value because that's where the bid ask is? You know, that that sort of evolution, and we've talked about this with other guests, but Despite the move away from traditional stock picking in equity markets and investment management, there is still so much value add for human beings making decisions as opposed to computers.
1: Correct. And so I should talk, I should, you know, I know this is your interview, but we do have a top secret indicator to warn us about all this stuff. And it's simply called residual variance. And what residual variance is when we do all our regressions and we calculate our alphas, betas, standard deviations, all that good stuff, residual variance is the risk we can't diversify away. And so the good news is we calculate it. The bad news is, as I go down the cap ladder, it explodes. And the bad news is- as Sorry, as not... you go
0: down the cap ladder, um, so yeah. you mean down into small caps from
1: large caps? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So a, a large cap stock will have a residual variance of 12 to 72 basis points, which means I can get picked off 12 to 72 basis points intraday if I'm so sloppy to place a market order versus a limit.
0: And that, sorry, just to, <laughs> just to clarify a little bit further, but when when you say residual variance, what that is, is the um, degree of return that is not explained by the combination of the, the quantitative factors, so alpha, right. beta, so on and so forth.
1: Correct, correct. And, um, res- So it's the unsystematic risk, the risk we can't diversify away. Mid-cap stock, it's probably running 60 to to 170 basis points, 180 basis points. Small cap, unfortunately, it's running um, about 140 to over 600 basis points. So basically, as we go down the cap ladder, we we realize there's more randomness. There's more uh, fudge factor. Um, The liquidity gets more hit and miss. And, um, so that goes back to this ETF rebalancing when they, I know that money's flowing down the cap ladder. Okay. Uh, because the tail end of the S and P did better last year than the top end. And I know everybody's doing equally weighted ETFs and I know every 90 days that they're going to have to buy more of them. Okay. Because of sheer flow of funds. I want to have my portfolios positioned in those fundamentally superior small caps or ADRs or wherever the money's flowing to get my free pop. Okay. And that's about to happen again in June. Okay. And it'll happen every 90 days, uh, until everybody wants to have cap weighted products again, you know? Um, so it's, um, it's just, I enjoy exploiting anomalies on the market. Okay. The fun thing about my job is you, you this is behavioral finance. It's never going to be a fixed format. You have to stay on top of it. You have to figure out what's changing everything. So you know, basically, I, I'm, I appreciate the fact the ETF industry has gotten big. Um, we, uh, we do management, but what we really enjoy is exploiting the flow of funds and the forced buying the ETFs uh, and a lot of these trading pipes are forced to do at the end of the quarter. And, um, and that's that. Now, back to the back to that wonderful era in the Bay Area where I, I grew up in, the one that was Hamburg and Quiz and Montgomery Securities, Back then when those guys provide liquidity and we had multiple market makers and we had NASDAQ level three and I could buy three days worth of volume of stock and never move it. Believe it or not, the markets had, had better liquidity back then than they do today. Well, that okay. makes
0: perfect sense, though, because, you know, y- it was easier to get paid to receive them, right? To receive Correct.
1: Like, the spreads We had spreads. Right. Correct. We had spreads. And um, so as we've squeezed the spreads out of the market, we squeeze a lot of liquidity out. And of course, there is liquidity when we're melting up. And of course, when the, then I, I just I just don't think people realize how fast liquidity can leave the market with the way all this mechanical trading we have now. And it's, again, to emphasize
0: liquidity leaving the market and very low bid ask spreads that mean you can't move very much of a given stock, of an ETF, et cetera, in a single trade. For the average person at home, this is probably, I mean, I think it's it's clearly, there's maybe a little bit more um, nuance to it than, than my view, but I think this is an unmitigated good thing so long as you are not trying to risk manage day to day and so long as you're buying and holding over very, very long periods. If that's the case, which is you know probably what's best for most people, um, then it, it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing, right? The Correct. problem comes when you try and operate in a way that was... That, that worked well in a high-spread, um, high-liquidity environment, and then you apply that to a low-spread, low-liquidity environment, you get chopped, and you get chopped hard.
1: Yeah, just like the, the seniors that, that leverage their preferreds, their MLPs, and their, uh, their REIT portfolios. Yeah, don't leverage those things. Yeah, You'll get picked off on the next margin call. So, you know, I'm not trying to pick on the market, but it's, markets are very seasonal. They're much better between mid-November and mid-April. We're entering the BMP summer months now. Uh, we rely on your reports to tell us how good the markets are in June and July. I hate August. That's all I can tell you. If I ever get to run the market, I'm going to close it every August. Sounds okay? good to me. I'll and, head to the uh, beach. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, we just try to educate people on these anomalies because it's there's something that's happened to our society, uh, not your reports, but the uh, – the way the news works nowadays, the finance, the, the, the we'll call it the investment newsletter business, uh, we'll call it the nightly news, we'll call it the, the political news, is everybody's trying to scare everybody ever, all the time. Totally. And we are always climbing this wall of worry, and you know we're we're melting up because of order imbalances for whatever reason. And there, I do worry, but I only I only worry about these mechanical things, and um, and I will I will continue to profit from. A good example is is. Uh, When Amazon uh, made the bid for Whole Foods, um, you know, I had a chat with my wife, and she decided to buy a bunch of Costco that day, because obviously she doesn't think uh, Amazon's going to compete with Costco tomorrow. So, you know, that was an anomaly we we were able to explore.
0: It's interesting you note, note though, that everything is about fear these days. I mean, in in my research, one of the things, when I'm writing a report, and, uh, you know, others at bespoke feel very similarly, one of the things we work hardest at is not trying to make everything about fear about bad news about bad outcomes because almost always in investing the bad stuff is overstated Um, a great way to think about this is the fact that over time Options trade volatility. The price of volatility is structurally higher than it ought to be, right? You, if you sell vol over a long period of time, you will outperform what you what what actually ought to have happened based on realized vol. And the reason for that is that people are always hedging bad outcomes and terrified of bad outcomes. That's not a new phenomenon, but I think that's a great financial markets encapsulation of, you know, sort of of, of the, what's happened. Another way to think about it is um, in the political realm. You know, when we had uh, Barack Obama as president. There was a lot of fear on the right that it was the end of the world, and so on and so forth. We now have a lot of fear on the left that uh, Donald Trump as president is the end of the world, so on and so forth. This isn't a this isn't one side or the other doing this. This is across society, across all kinds of different political beliefs and different socioeconomic, uh, you know, levels, and so on and so forth. So it it really the the wall of worry and the systemic fear throughout society does seem to be more pervasive than just the market or um just you know one given subject area it's it's everywhere and i i, I think that's something that doesn't necessarily get talked about enough we are conditioned now depending on a bunch of other factors to be afraid of stuff
1: correct and but see what's so nice why i'm a so big fan of your research is you're very clinical you're very um you kind of cut to the, the chase. Uh, so I've used your report that um, in the first 50 days of um, of a first term of a presidency, uh, the market's gone up 95.9% of the time. Uh, the only exception was 87, and uh, it was a pretty good year uh, through September. So we like to tell everybody that, okay, no matter what you think of Mr. Trump, according to Spoke, looks like we're going to have smooth sailing through September, Okay, based on the historical pattern. Um, another report you came out with is when, the, the, the NASDAQ, uh, 100's up over 20% in the first 106 days, uh, the rest of the year should be pretty good. And you, you had all the years there and I went out and figured out since 91, uh, it's, it's been a pretty good ride. And, um, so it's, it's, I, I like the fact that you're clinical, you know, like when I go to the, to the doctor, they tell me how messed up I am. And, uh, and when, I read Bespoke, you tell me uh, just the truth, uh, how healthy the market is. And, you know, even even all your, your sector stuff, how you're o- we're overbought, oversold, that's very valuable for, for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, um, so we like to close out this podcast conversation with a segment called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap. Um, I'm going to throw out to you some word association and you can kind of come back to me and say, you know, um, that's trading rich. It's overvalued by society. People think it's too great relative to what it actually is or vice versa. Um, so you live in South Florida. There's been a huge amount of recovery since the bad days and the immediate aftermath of the Great Recession. Um, the Southeast in general has a lot of great things going for it. Do you think um, Florida is and, and uh, South Florida is trading rich or trading?
1: cheap uh south florida's trading rich uh, northern florida is probably a better place if you want to buy real not estate. not just
0: real estate though um you know culturally people moving there um that sort of thing
1: i i base where i live the, the property taxes are cost prohibitive for most people so i would encourage them to go nor- north of florida where you can have a normal life um you know we were very seasonal down here it's not um it's, it's not a place to really build a, a full-time business.
0: By North Florida, you mean Orlando, Jacksonville, not the panhandle, but...
1: I, I would rather, yeah, people uh, uh, be up in like Ponte Vedra area would be an ideal area, Jacksonville area.
0: Do you think that the uh, index industry and, and not just ETFs, which we've talked about a lot in this conversation, but indexing in general, do you think that that approach to the markets is trading rich or trading
1: cheap? I think they they indexing creates bubbles. Okay. Um, and they've always created bubbles. And, um, and I think we just have to be smart enough to identify it. And, um, I, so I really like the smart beta, uh, fundamental, uh, evolution because I think ETFs long-term have better pricing because of that, but I'll just pick on Tesla. I think the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100 has blown a bubble under Tesla. That's not going to end well. And, uh, I, um, you know, we have the battery uh my my i have my operations in reno nevada and um we we have the tesla battery plant there there's a lot of problems and uh we do think tesla's going to end very badly but i think it's its valuation bubble was largely caused by the qqq the nasdaq 100 and i realize that they have a lot of exciting companies i own a, a lot of those companies and um and i know the has done incredible but i think um you got to be. You got to look at the components in the index from time to time, and um, you know the folks at McGraw Hill now have a something called a free float adjustment to fix the S and P, uh, and so it doesn't get too cap weighted anymore like it did back in the go go nineties and when the bubble burst in March two thousand. So I, I'm a big fan of the smart beta ETFs versus the passive ones, and uh, I just think we got to be careful what we put in all these. Uh, ETF products.
0: You mentioned Tesla. Um, Nevada and uh, the Mountain West um, in general, all the way out to California, has been quite instrumental in the sort of growth of green energy in the United States. Uh, The EIA uh, reported in its most recent report that uh, solar and wind are 10 percent um, of U.S. power generation capacity, a state like Iowa is getting thirty-seven percent of its uh, electricity from solar and wind. Obviously, they're in pretty brisk wind country out there in the Midwest. Um, but do you think uh, green energy and its share of of power generation and and sort of the backbone of of energy in the in the United States? Do you think it's trading rich or trading cheap?
1: Oh, it's. It's way rich. I mean, listen. The good news is prices are falling. Uh, I will tell, say one thing about my all my friends in California. At least you be, believe in what you promote, and um, and you are basically helping that green revolution. But the question is, under Mr. Trump, are you going to get any more tax credits, and can you compete? You know, there's been a lot of problems like Solar City. Okay. Uh, in, uh, in, in Nevada now, if I put up solar se- solar at my home in Nevada, I have a fairly large piece of property, so I can put up a lot of sales, I can't sell back to the grid because Tesla uh, stole that right from me. Uh, so a lot, there's a lot of anger in, in Nevada against Tesla uh, for doing that. Um, uh, our utility bills are going to go up because they have the exclusive solar rights in Nevada now. Uh, even though I could sell to my house, I can't sell back to the grid. I think it's it's like anything in life; it gets very political. And um, uh, I think the as far as that green revolution goes, you know, we have uh, all the server farms up where we are, and you know they laid all the high-speed fiber and all that good stuff. And uh, and then uh, then we wonder why is our air quality so bad with all this green stuff? And it found out we had a coal plant feeding all the server farms. (laughs) So you know the all the uh, All the cloud computing goes wherever the cheap electricity is, whether that's the Columbia River Gorge for hydro or whether it's some nuclear plant nearby. But a lot of it goes wherever there's cheap electricity from coal, which is basically Utah. And unfortunately, in Nevada, we have coal, too. And uh, so there goes our air quality in the wintertime. We get inversion layers. So, you know, I I think uh, Nevada is not as a... um, Green as as California is, and uh, I I think the folks in California are still leading the way. The question is, will they get the subsidies they need to, to continue? Because Solar City was just a disaster, and I worry about Mr. Musk and everything he's trying to do. I think he's a little I think he's a little Trump-like, and every time you ask him a question, he gives you another answer uh, on something totally different. And so. Uh, you know, it's um, I'm very, very worried about uh, his ability to raise money on Wall Street much longer.
0: The um, cost thing is interesting. Lazard, in their most recent outlook, this was earlier this year, projected um, that coal and solar are essentially at grid parity, um, life cycle grid parity, um, even without subsidies. So subsidies obviously make solar more attractive. And there are some attributes of solar, obviously, that are never going to be able to match what you could do with coal power in terms of um, 24 hours a day Add, subtract, load, however much you need. Solar doesn't work that way, uh, at least without some sort of significant advance in storage. But um, the cost is, you know, basically equal without subsidies now, which is which is interesting. I mean, and and deflating rapidly, whereas coal is still is, is inflating.
1: It's very admirable when you're in California to see solar everywhere. Then when I land in the Potomac, go over the Potomac River, landing in D.C., I land over a coal plant. It'd be, it'd be nice, uh, the, and I'm going to give Californians full credit for for basically investing in what they believe. And um, so it's, uh, but you know, outside of that state, you know, they got to get going a little bit in other states. And I just don't think Nevada's leading the push, largely because Tesla interfered with us selling it back to the grid.
0: Win's another just to add, we didn't talk about wind, but Win's another interesting one. I was not getting there their renewables from solar. They're getting them from uh, wind farms. I can remember driving around the country, you know, and I was graduating from college, and and driving through Indiana and and Illinois and you know rural Indiana, rural Illinois, Illinois, and into Iowa, and the trees of you know the the forests of of windmills is just really impressive. There's there's a lot being done there too, so that's interesting. Anyhow,
1: uh, sure. In, go, in, go ahead. In Texas, you know the the windmills actually cut the natural gas uh, demand. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you got to give Texas credit for leading the wind charge.
0: Uh, so last one: trading rich or trading cheap? Elite education. You've got a uh, son at Stanford. Uh, uh, both my parents went to Stanford, so I got a I got a soft spot in my heart for the Cardinal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the the value of a college education at some of these elite institutions is is going up, going down, or going to stay about the same?
1: Well, I'm a state guy. I only paid twenty four hundred bucks, and that's with books. And uh, <laughs> so, but. Yeah, you know, my dad was a bricklayer and I didn't want to pump concrete. Uh, so I, I ran through college. Um, but I think uh, in my son's case, yeah, it's uh, it's working out fine. Uh, he obviously networks well. Uh, his internships are top notch. Um, you know, he can graduate early. Uh, I sat on one of the uh, California college boards uh, and I said, well, why don't you do the three-year degrees like I, I got and a bunch of my friends got? And they said, oh, because the budget cut's going to be five and a half years. So I'd rather go to a, a private school pay through the nose and go to a public school and and pay next uh, pay a lot of money and have to graduate late. So, um, you know, it's, um, there's, it's the, the private colleges are rating some of the public colleges now because of the finance problems. And, uh, so, um, you know, it's, but it's like any life, your kids have to go get a good degree, you know? So if they get a degree that, uh, doesn't facilitate their career, then, then it's another matter. But in my son's case, he's, he's uh, obviously getting engineering degrees and uh, he's going to hopefully uh, accomplish a lot.
0: Well, that's, this has been great. Um, Louis Navelier, uh, really fantastic conversation. And I think we went deeper into mic- market microstructure and some of the drivers around ETFs and the cost of liquidity and that sort of, Subject um, that we haven't had a chance to talk much about on Bespoke Cast. So, uh, fantastic insight from you. Thank you so much for joining us, and we really
1: appreciate it. So, it's been an honor, George. Thank you again. you got great research, and I'll religiously use it every day.
0: Joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit BespokePremium.com and follow us on Twitter at BespokeInvest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC, believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC, is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.